Well, we are uh, very blessed this morning to have uh, in our service uh, Dr. Mike Grisanti of the Master's uh, Seminary. He's been there 14 years uh, teaching at Old Testament languages and literature there at the seminary, making a wonderful contribution uh, towards the training and development of uh, the next generation of pastors and church leaders here in this country and around uh, the world. He has traveled extensively, ministered extensively, and uh, on the Master Seminary website, here's some of the countries that he's ministered in Colombia, Honduras, Albania, France, Israel, Italy, Japan, Jordan, Russia, and Ukraine. And he's also been to Chile, just found that out. Um, so God is using uh, this brother. He's also um, written and contributed to numerous works that some of which have been uh, very uh, helpful to me personally and 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 my ministry. What I appreciate about Dr. Mike Rosanti is that he is a scholar of the highest rank, in my opinion, but he's not simply a scholar. He is a warm hearted brother with the heart of a pastor. And I think that'll be evident to you as he breaks open uh, God's word to us this morning. Uh, he's married to Martha Ann, who is with him. Uh, here in our service, they've been married for 31 years and have had eight children, ages 28 down to 11. And their youngest, uh, Theresa, is here this morning. She was in the first service, but she's in Sunday school right now. So, so much to commend this brother. And we're happy to have you with us to open up God's word. Looking forward to hearing what God has laid on your heart. So why don't you come and let's give our brother a warm cornerstone welcome. Well, good morning. Um, I am I'm glad to be here today. Grateful for Pastor Milton's uh, invitation. I uh, have respected him from a distance for a number of years, but for obvious reasons, when I'm here, he's gone. And so uh, we've not had the chance to connect personally all that much, but I'm so grateful for his uh, mentoring in the lives of the men I've seen at the seminary, uh, Mike and uh, Carlos and a chance to intersect. We uh, share with the Lays in Albania, a love for them, Placerita. We are sure thrilled. Uh, we have to share them with these guys over here for some reason. They want to come to Riverside. I'm not sure why. No, we, we're so we're sure grateful for your investment in their lives, too, and that common interest. And uh, just I'm grateful for fellowships that are committed to being light in a desperately needy world and uh, trying to seek... God's honor, and as moms and dads leading our families, and all of that is so important. We live in a world that's heading in the wrong direction and uh, has no good answers, and God's given us the privilege of, uh, by his strength, helping direct their attention to the God of gods. And uh, it's exciting to think of how God does that through fellowships of faithful believers trying to live lives for God's glory and sharing the gospel with the lost. So thank you for your attention. Uh, before I look at what, uh, by the way, my wife is up here. I think Milton said that already, and I'm just so glad she's in my life outside of my salvation. She's my greatest blessing and treasure. And uh, God sure is uh, demonstrating his grace to me on a daily basis by her presence in my life. Uh, before I gather, I, I look at Micah 6. Let's gather hearts together in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that... We can come before you as the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God who holds the, the mountains and the hills as a, in the dust of his hand and weigh them in a balance. The God who spoke this world into existence and who controls it and directs its ways. That great God, you, has seen fit. We thank you that you've seen fit to set your love on us. Sin, sinners, sinful people. What a blessing it is to know that you commended your love, you gave your love to us while we were yet sinners. And Lord, through that gift, Jesus Christ, who lived that sinless life and died that horrific death and rose from the dead and who was exalted to your right hand, you give us the ability to have our feet taken out of the miry clay and set upon a rock 
and establishing our going. Thank you for the life-transforming power of the gospel in our salvation first, but even for daily living. To be able to find victory over sin and the ability to live for your glory by living out that gospel on a daily basis. We thank you for your word and the blessing it is to us. I pray that you could take your word, which is clear, and by your spirit drive it home to each of our hearts. And help us to understand with stark reality that we, that I, am not sufficient in myself, in ourselves, for the task you've put before us. But left to our own resources, left to our own efforts, left to just focusing on tasks that we will crash and burn, that we will fall on our face. But Lord, that's not what you intend. You long that we would depend absolutely and totally on you to allow your spirit to enable us to live holy lives. And I pray that as we look at Micah 6 this morning, that we would see how important it is to initiate through salvation and maintain a vibrant and growing relationship with you. And out of that, as the engine driving our heart, that we would obey you and make you big in the world. Hide your servant behind the cross, I pray, and be glorified in all that's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we all, well, we all know, different kinds of people in this world, and two common categories, I think, that relate to the message this morning, and that is some individuals who may be task-focused and others that are people-focused. And you've met them before. Some people are very, very efficient. They get jobs done, they crank out the work, but they're not all that fun to be around. It's hard to talk to them, and they're very task-focused. We, we, we are grateful for God's gift of them to us. Uh, Sometimes it's challenging. And then there are other kinds of people who love other people. They talk, they, they visit, they're around other people, they relate, they connect, and they are just people lovers. They may not get a whole lot done, but they just engage people. And those are two extremes, and we know that we ourselves fit somewhere in the middle generally. But those two kinds of people are, are, are things that uh, we can identify with. Task-focused, relationship-focused, people-focused. And we would all agree, wherever you are in that spectrum, that there still is no doubt tasks and things are a lot easier than people, right? I can, I can, I can blow through my to-do list much more easily than maybe shepherding my kids in a faithful, strategic, consistent way. It's more life-invasive to have relationships. Now, I want to assure you, as, as I recognize the difference between those two and the greater ease in dealing with tasks and stuff, I want my life full of relationships, I don't want a life full of things and stuff, jobs, tasks. So, so we, have, we see that in the real world that we have those kinds of emphases or extremes. Well, I suggest to you that there's a similar but even more important contrast in our walk with God between those two extremes. As God's children, we also could be, can be task-focused or relationship-focused. But we have a bigger problem. All of us, by nature, in our walk with God, our default setting, our tendency, our first step is to focus on tasks, to-do lists, things rather than relationship. Now keep in mind, I want you to understand that lists and tasks are not intrinsically bad. Christianity does involve do's and don'ts. In God's word, he lays before us numerous clear expectations that show up in concrete form. The big question is this. Does genuine Christianity, does a vibrant walk with God primarily involve do's and don'ts? Is Christianity just a list of do's and don'ts? Would you describe your walk with God as a performance treadmill, checking along, moving forward, checking the end off the list, hoping you don't fall off the treadmill and get crunched, hoping you measure up to God's standard. Well, friends, New, Old and New Testament cries out the message that is not at all what God intended for us. 
And the prophet Micah, I think, addresses this issue. He's, he's telling us here that a walk with God involves a relationship that manifests itself in obedience. It's a relationship with the one and only true God. That yes, it does involve, it does involve do's and don'ts. So this morning, if you look at Micah, I want you to see with me in chapter 6 that God had something to say through Micah about what God wants most. And it's as valuable, as biblical, as requirements, as lists of tasks are to God. They're dwarfed by his desire for our heart, for a vibrant, growing relationship with him. Now, Mike was a man who God used for a number of ways. Some great things happened in his ministry and through his book. For example, Micah 5.2, where he prophesied that uh, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, which is exactly what happened to the word. But Micah is also a, a, a prophet that God used to bring some bad news to God's people because he, he had to rebuke the nation of Israel for their constant pattern of rebellion. You see, one of the, one of the problems that the prophet Micah confronts is Israel's tendency to keep up their religious appearances, cross their T's and dot their I's, while at the same time as they're maintaining these appearances, their heart drove them to treat their fellow Israelites with injustice and a lack of compassion. They were checking items off the list, but not pursuing God with their whole heart. They didn't understand what God wanted most from them. And so through this morning's message, my heart is that you'll understand with me the thing you have at the top of your outline, that key idea, that God desires that we as his children would have a true and sincere growing relationship with him. He longs that our walk with him is not merely an external show focusing on tasks and lists primarily, but more importantly would be an internal reality, inside out, the passion of our life. To make him big. So we'll see that. Walk through. You have the outline in your, in your, in your bulletin there. Uh, first point is the court is now in session. I want you to see in the prophet Micah a very serious presentation of God's concern for his people. Presented in a kind of a legal, legal language. In modern society we've heard of all kinds of lawsuits. Some are quite frivolous. Others have significance. So we know what lawsuits are. Well Micah 6 is kind of like a, law, kind of like a lawsuit that the Lord, Yahweh, brings against his chosen nation, Israel, for an important reason. And I want to introduce you to the players, to the participants in the lawsuit, and have you understand the biblical foundation. What's the problem? And uh, we're going to see the accused, first of all, then the witnesses, and then the prosecutor and judge. So let's look at the defendant, first of all. Israel, the accused, told to present their case. And the Lord says here through the prophet, in verse 1, Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear what you have to say. To plead your case, to defend yourself, to state your case. The Lord is challenging the defendant to defend itself against the charges he is about to bring to them. And who's the second? Who makes it the second set of participants? The mountains and the hills. These enduring witnesses are told to listen and compare. Notice verse 1. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear. Verse 2. Hear, O mountains, you everlasting foundations of the earth. Listen. You see, as it is true in the ancient Near East, there are treaties that took place. Various in various places in the Old Testament, the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the hills are called as enduring witnesses. They're personified as legal witnesses that will help to settle the dispute between God and his people. And the biblical prophets refer to mountains and hills and heavens and earth for an important reason. Look at Isaiah 1, where he says at the beginning of his prophetic book, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And he's saying that for a reason, not just because he's kind of uh, cosmologically driven. He likes to think about heavens and earth. No, he wants to drive their minds back to something. That the indictment that Isaiah brings against God's people in the book of Isaiah isn't about Oh, you violated these list of rules. No, they've committed treachery in the context of a relationship to which they've committed themselves wholeheartedly. He goes back to the Mosaic Covenant, where in Deuteronomy 32.1, Moses wrote, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak and, give, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. 
when God established the covenant with his people back in Moses' time, the heavens and the earth and the hills and the mountains were silent, enduring witnesses of God entering into this covenant with his people. They had witnessed God, Yahweh, establishing this unique covenant relation with Israel, and they'd witnessed Israel's glad acceptance of that covenant when in Exodus 19 they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. So here the prophet Micah calls on the heavens, the hills and the mountains, enduring witnesses to listen to the current situation and compare it to what Israel had promised to do and to see, to affirm the treachery that was taking place. And then the third participant is the Lord himself, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, who has a dispute with Israel. But I want you to understand as he brings this dispute, this serious charge against God's people, he doesn't do it as an uncaring God. Arbitrary, malicious, impatient. No, no, not at all. The prophet who is speaking on the Lord's behalf introduces the dispute that the Lord has with his people. But notice what he says in verse, verse 2. After the serious language about hearing the Lord's accusation. For the Lord has a charge against, notice, his people. And then verse 3, the Lord himself says, my people. Verse 5, my people. You see, throughout the Old Testament, his people and my people emphasize God's covenant love for this nation. In Leviticus 26, 12 and 13, he said, Through Moses, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom with heads held high. According to the prophet Micah, they are... His people, Yahweh calls them my people. The point is, in bringing this indictment against his people, it's in the context of an intimate relationship he enjoys with them. He longs to have with them. It's not a a lawsuit to try to get rid of Israel. No, it's a lawsuit motivated by love. Calling them to live the life of loyalty to which they had committed themselves. So that's the intimacy of the relationship that's at at the foundation. But notice the severity of the charge says here in verse 2, For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. What's the point of this law? What's the theological foundation for this legal emphasis? Remember when the Lord had entered into this covenant with Israel back with Abraham in Genesis 12, he committed himself to be their God, to care for them, to, to guarantee their welfare and destiny, to guard them. But he also demanded loyalty from them. Wholehearted obedience. Inside out. And you know, sometimes we misunderstand what God is looking for. If I were to ask you, what's the sum and substance of the Mosaic law? Many of you might say sacrifices, clean and unclean food, you know, this requirement, that requirement. But if you were to boil down the Mosaic covenant into one sentence, you have it at the bottom of the screen. I will be your God. You will be my people. The Mosaic Covenant isn't about doodads, primarily. It's about a relationship into which God was entering into with his people. He was wanting to enjoy this relationship with them as their God and them as his people in an unparalleled way. And remember, they had said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do in Exodus 19. Israel had committed themselves to an exclusive Covenant relationship with the Lord, the Redeemer and Maker. And in Micah 6, as with other passages, refer to the heavens and the earth or the hills and the mountains as witnesses of this far-reaching covenant. The problem is, all too often in Israel's existence, and it was at a climax here in Micah's day, Israel was committing covenant treachery. They were rejecting the Lord's exclusive claims and their loyalty. They were pursuing other things or hypocritically pursuing the God they claim to serve. And so we have some very serious language here, this this lawsuit terminology. And I want you to understand that from the perspective maybe of marriage. We can identify with that. At some point in time, a lot of you here before God is your witness, before the pastor, before the bridal party, the people assembled at your your wedding, you you made lofty and uh, significant commitments to one another. Not empty words or trivial promises, but things that were life-impacting. Not to be taken lightly. 
and for you to conduct yourself in a hypocritical way in that relationship, not really living out your promise, or even commit treachery in the context of that relationship is a horrific thing. It's a grievous thing. And that's the similar issue that Mike is bringing up today. He's, he's saying Israel's God longs to have an exclusive covenant relationship with his covenant nation. Israel had committed themselves to that same relationship, but they betrayed that God. They committed treachery against that relationship. That's why court is now in session. That's why Mike is, Mike is bringing this message to God's people. Look secondly at the Lord's indictment of Israel, verses 3 to 5. We heard about the fact of an indictment being brought in the first two verses. Now the Lord kind of spells out evidence for this indictment. And he starts in an absolutely shocking way with these probing questions in verse 3. Unlike any court case where a trial begins with laying charges against the accused, that's how the case normally starts. The Lord begins by turning the scrutiny toward himself. He doesn't first focus on their covenant treachery and their rebellion, which, of which there was abundant evidence. No, he gives them, the accused, the first shot by asking him these questions. And, and it seems like it almost implies there was a complaint circulating among God's people that God had failed them somehow. And that was just cause for their rebellion. Has God conducted himself improperly? Has God failed to bring to pass something he promised? He asks here, in verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wronged you? How have I burdened you? The idea of burden could have the idea of physical exhaustion, to frustrate somebody's attempts to get something done, to, to exhaust someone's patience. How have I exhausted your patience, O Israel? Could it be that this broken relationship is the result of God's failure? Something he had done? Was he... An oppressor like Egypt instead of a deliverer? It's like the Lord is saying, Israel, I don't know what to say or think when I see your conduct in light of what I know I've done on your behalf. So help me. Go ahead. What are the evidences of my unfaithfulness that could in any way justify the way you've been conducting your lives? He says, answer me. In the end of verse, verse 3. And of course, they had nothing to say. No substantiation for their conduct. No word against the charge. And so just to make sure they're clear that he hasn't failed them, as a, but as a matter of fact, had intervened on their behalf on numerous occasions, he gives them an abbreviated brief historical reminder in verses 4 and 5. And there are four things here. We'll cover two of them a little more carefully and fly over two. First one, enemy number one, Egypt, in the first part of verse 4. So he talks, he begins this historical overview by referring to his impressive deliverance of them from the land of Egypt. And he says there, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Look at the action the Lord took, first of all. Those two verbs, he brought them up and he redeemed them. When he brought them up, that verb brought up and brought out occurs over 50 times in the Old Testament to describe how God extricated his chosen people out of a horrific set of circumstances. And this act of deliverance was something deeply embedded in Israel's, Israel's history. It was something that happened repeatedly. It should have been part of the fabric of their memory. It had happened so frequently. God himself brought this deliverance to pass. He brought them up. He had, he had not only brought them up, but he also redeemed them. He delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He freed them from their downtrodden existence as slaves. He brought them out. He brought them up. And he redeemed them. And when you contrast this with verse 3, it's like, wearied you? Done something wrong? You've got to be kidding me. As a matter of fact, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you. The prophet was trying to make a contrast between their warped understanding of God's dealings with them and the plain facts of history in the Bible. And we should resonate with that, I'd suggest, because there are various times in our lives when we kind of think God's failed and we're disillusioned and God hasn't stepped up and, and we kind of feel sorry for ourselves and justify our choices. And friends, we need to get our eyes off of the miry clay around us 
We need to get off the circumstances that are plaguing us and realize there's a God of gods who has set his love on me and is giving me his mercy and grace then and now to motivate me to obey him. The problem isn't with God. It's where is the focus of my attention. And so he's trying to help them understand that, that there's a contrast between what they thought and what was really true. The action the Lord took, he brought them up and he redeemed them. But look at the place of deliverance. Again, this is not an inconsequential information. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land, from the place of slavery. This occurs over a dozen times in the Old Testament to refer to the situation from which the Lord delivered his people. First of all, the land of Egypt. And you might well, okay, it's a place in the world. What's the big deal? Well, just this. It's just that at that time, the land of Egypt, the country of Egypt, was one of the most important, strong, international powers in the world. That's all. And what God did in delivering his people out of Egypt, out of the clutches of this powerful empire, was something that was absolutely unparalleled. Unique. And to see that, Deuteronomy 4, 34 and 35, Moses asked the question, a rhetorical question that has an obvious no answer. Has any God ever taken, tried to take for himself one nation, Israel, out of another nation, Egypt, by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? And the unanimous answer should have been, No! And why? Why did God do those things? You were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. That he is the one and only, absolutely incomparable God of the universe. And he's the one with whom Israel had the privilege of having a relationship with. So what kind of a God did those kinds of things in unparalleled God? A God who brought to pass what he promised. The God who brought them out of Egypt. was a great God who deserved their obedience and loyalty. But he also says, now he brought them out of Egypt, but he redeemed them from the land, from the place of slavery. This place of slavery is not an official topographical name for Egypt. It's a, it's a title that describes Egypt from Israel's perspective. And they would have resonated with this. What God brought to pass was not simply a change of address. Oh, you live here now. No, he delivered his chosen people from abject slavery to a foreign power. And friends, this was a situation from which there was absolutely no human deliverance. Without God, they were toast. They didn't have a chance. They were doomed to stay there. But God made the difference. This is the God who is not an inactive do-nothing God, an empty windbag God. No. He intervened on behalf of his people in order to bring his promises to pass. He had committed himself to make, give them a land. That wasn't an empty promise. He was bringing that to pass by bringing them out of Egypt and deliver, redeeming them out of the land, the place of slavery. And just as an aside, think about how important this reference is to the land of Egypt and the, and the place of slavery. You see, about a dozen times these two occur as a pair in the Old Testament. It is important to see why it occurs where it occurs. Look at one of them with me. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. I could look to Deuteronomy 5, but I want to shock people by going to another book with Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments is given in both books, Deuteronomy 20 and uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The Ten Commandments begin in verse 3, where he is laying out for God's people his demand for their loyalty in an unparalleled way. And who is it that is asking their loyalty? Notice verse 2 gives you the front porch for that. I am the Lord your God. He's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, their personal God, the absolutely sovereign creator God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. There's our two terms. He's the God who brought to pass his promise on the page of human history. Didn't just talk about it, did it. Transform their lives. That's the God that calls them to obey the Ten Commandments. That's the God that deserves their obedience. And that's the God the Israelites were misunderstanding. Has he wronged them? Has he wearied them? As a matter of fact, no. He is the God who's intervened in their life in a powerful way to accomplish his plan on their behalf. 
You see, the reason that the Lord could demand that his chosen people obey him wholeheartedly and live a life of absolute loyalty is that he is totally responsible for the deliverance from Egypt. That should have been the fire that moved them forward, the passion of their heart that showed up in obedience. He's the Redeemer. He formed them as a nation. That's the first part of the historical overview. Next two, just fly over with mention. You have three leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, that were given to God's people to direct them, to give them leadership in this very difficult situation of wandering in the wilderness. There's Balak, Balak of Moab, who hired Balaam the prophet to curse God's people, and God prevented that from happening and made him bless God's people. The point is God is intervening. In, in, in things that don't just involve the Exodus. But look at the fourth one with me. The stupendous miracle. Sorry. There we go. The stupendous miracle. In the end of verse uh, 5, remember your journey from, from Shittim to Gilgal. What in the world is that? Shittim to Gilgal. Well, here on the map, you can see on the right side, the circled word is Shittim, and the one in the center is Gilgal. And notice there's a little blue line between the two called the Jordan River. Okay, think about this with me. Shatim, what happened to Shatim? Well, when they, when they got the Shatim, they were done wandering. When they got the Shatim, that's when Balaam tried to curse them and God prevented it. While they're at Shatim, God gave Moses the message of Deuteronomy. And when they're at Shatim, they sent the two spies into the land of promise to, to check the land out and came back and gave the report. And what's Gilgal? Well, Gilgal is their first encampment in the land of promise. This is the beginning of their experience of the fulfillment of the promise that God would give them a land. And what had to happen in order for point A to point B to take place? Well, what's between the two? looks like this very narrow strip of water to be easy to jump across. It's the Jordan River, which, if you've ever been there before, is not all that impressive, especially down here. But this was that flood stage. And in the Jordan River, a flood stage was a half a mile to two miles wide. And so what, did, what does God do? <laughs> this isn't the God who brings them to the Jordan River and say, okay, you're on your own, buddy. Get the cross the best you can. No, this is the God who reminisces with the cross of the Red Sea as the priests approach the waters with the Ark of the Covenant as their feet get near to the water. The water parts and their feet comes down on dry ground. This is the God who says, I'm going to facilitate the fulfillment of my promise in a way that glorifies me before the world and before you. And he mentions this here from Gilgal to Shittim as an important indication of the kind of God he is. And what does he want them to do? It says in verse 5 twice, my people, remember. And then partway through the verse, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. He wants them to not just recall a collection of facts in order to pass an exam. And those of you who are either done with or wrapping up your semester at school really identify with that. That's not what he's talking about. He wanted Israel to experience these historical realities as present events that impacted the way they lived. He's talking about life-transforming remembrance. This, this remembrance of what God had done in their behalf was the foundation for their present and future loyalty to him. And why else? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He's the one who always does what's right. He doesn't fail. He doesn't have unjust expectations. No, he's the God who always does what's right. He can be trusted to bring to pass precisely what he promised. So in his indictment against his people, he, he, he blows away the idea that he could have failed, and he demonstrates that he has been flawless in his care for them, which brings their conduct to an even sadder spot. And we read then of, in verses 6 and 7, Israel's response to the Lord. After hearing the Lord's painful probing questions and his convincing summary of all he had done on their behalf, Israel should have been speechless. They should have rolled over in repentance and, and, and begged God for forgiveness and, and, and obeyed him from the inside out. They should have known beyond doubt that Yahweh had been absolutely faithful and they'd been nothing but rebels. There's a problem. They're at odds with their covenant Lord. There's a chasm fixed between them and in Yahweh. How can they fix the problem? Well, I imagine between verse 5, when the Lord finishes this overview of what he had done on their behalf, and verse 6, <clears throat> there's a long pause as it sinks in. And it seems that the prophet then switches gears and <clears throat> plays the role of an Israelite hypothetical worshiper 
Joe Israelite, we'll call him. And he, he wants to know, how does he fix the problem? How does he have access to God? How does he bridge the gap? And so he's asking someone else for advice. Okay, will this work? How about this? It's like this hypothetical Israelite standing outside the sanctuary of God and the door is locked. How do I get back inside? What's the key? How can I restore my relationship with God? And you're going to see in this verse that the Israelites don't understand what God expected of them. The Lord had entered into a covenant relationship with them. But they had corrupted that covenant relationship into some kind of a detailed, externally focused contract, lists, tasks, as what God wanted first and foremost. And it seems like this Joe Israelite, this representative Israelite worshiper, was asking the price that will win God's favor, raising the bid as time goes by. It appears he assumes that God as man can be bought. And so he asks in verse 6, this hypothetical Israelite worshiper, Joe Israelite, says, With what or how shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? And then he offers three answers. Increasing in value and sacrifice. The first one talks about total dedication, verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? You see, burnt offerings, which, which involved various animals without blemish, represented very expensive offerings. Most of the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law were not totally consumed on the altar. The vast majority of sacrifices of the Mosaic Law involved taking a certain part of the sacrificial animal, burning that on the altar, and the rest was eaten by the Levites and the priests, the meat. And that was a way God provided for the priests and the Levites through the sacrificial system as well. There's one set of sacrifices called fellowship offerings, where it's kind of like a potluck, if you will, where the worshiper's family and the priests and Levites attending the sacrifice would share and have a meal together from the meat of the sacrificial animal. The burnt offering is another category all by itself. With a burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed. Nothing was for the offer, the offerer, the worshiper, or for the priest and the Levites. And a calf was commonly offered as a sacrifice, and it could be as young as seven days old and be offered. But here we're talking about a yearling. A yearling calf was always regarded as the best. And think about it. If you have any farming in your past, you'd understand what this would involve. By the time, by that time, if a year had gone by, that calf had eaten a lot of food and received a lot of attention, was worth a fair bit of money. And so to offer a yearling calf as a burnt offering was a demanding sacrifice. Total dedication. Well, let's think bigger. One step bigger than that. What's another option, according to Joe Israelite here in verse 7? Abundant sacrifice. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousand rivers of oil? Maybe God wanted a mammoth, impressive set of sacrifices like what Solomon offered when he dedicated the temple. He offered hundreds of sacrificial animals to honor the Lord for his role in the life of Israel. And before we look at those two aspects of of rams and uh, oil, look at the progression of of numbers here. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? We've seen that before. It's at the bottom of the slide, 1 Samuel 18.7. As David and Saul were coming back from the battle with the Philistines that uh, took place in the wake of David's defeat of Goliath, they had both distinguished themselves in that battle and slain many Philistines. And the ladies lie in the street and they say, as they dance, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And we see Saul have a little hissy fit and get really upset and kind of huff off because they're comparing his deeds as puny compared to David doing something ten times greater than him. Well, Saul didn't have a clue. That's not what that set of that set of phrases meant. He had this inferiority complex. He was listening to what he wanted to listen to, and he mis- poorly responded to it. When they say thousands and ten, and ten thousands, the point isn't win, loser winner. That's not the point. They're saying thousands and tens of thousands. They're saying together as a poetic pair. A number beyond what you could imagine. What they're saying is, Saul and David are responsible for impressive victories. They've slain many Philistines. It's a way of describing unimaginable numbers. 
Okay, let's look how it's applied here. Rams and rivers of oil. Thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. Both of these commodities, rams, male sheep, and rivers of oil, were part of the sacrificial system at the temple, tabernacle. Though he's not pitting one against the other, they both had a role to play. And he's talking about an abundant, lavish sacrifice. So he's saying, he's saying, perhaps, first of all, the first option was a burnt offering. The most expensive sacrifice that involved everything being offered consumed. Lavish sacrifice option number two. What about a thousand rams? Something that no one could afford with that. Unlock the door to let me back in. Beyond that, what about 10,000 streams of oil? Now, to understand that last statement, we need to think about streams in like the Midwest or the East, because in Southern California, I think we're kind of like Israel in some ways. Uh, you know, back in Santa Clarita, we had the mighty Santa Clara River. First time we visited to interview at the Master Seminary, we were shown by one of our colleagues, oh yeah, this is the Santa Clara River. And my wife and I looked at each other and we said, you know, back home, rivers have water in them. <laughs> so if you're from the Midwest or the East, you know what rivers are. We are not too far from the, from the Mississippi River back in Minneapolis. Big river, lots of water, and we know from our news headlines that Flooding rivers do a lot of damage, overflowing their banks. And so we know what full rivers are. But this is what the picture is in, in Micah. We're talking about 10,000 wadis, dry riverbeds of oil. Here's a picture in the land of Israel. Think about it. I know this is backwards for you. Here's west and here's east. So the Mediterranean Sea, a storm is coming off the Mediterranean Sea and is going to drop water on the land of Israel. So it drops out water and as it raises an elevation of the continental divide, to the middle of Israel, it starts dropping water on the east side as well. It's petering out of it, but it's still dropping rainwater that goes over the east side of the Continental Divide. Well, while that's happening, unknown to the folks who have decided to go on a camping trip over Memorial Day weekend, let's say, it really would be heavy earlier than that for the rainy season, they're down there camped in a nice flat spot on the way to the Dead Sea. Very comfortable. They had their s'mores the night before, great meal. They go to bed in their tent, and they're just happy as clams, right? And they're, they're sleeping, and all of a sudden they kind of hear this rumbling. The ground is vibrating a bit, and this roar is hearing. They open up their tent door, and there's a 10-foot wall of water that, they're toast. They're gone. They're swept into the Dead Sea. By the way, that happens every year in Israel. Unsuspecting campers camping in a waterbed, a dry waterbed, a riverbed that they don't know is a river, get washed away because up there on the, on the continental divide, when the rain was falling, they had no clue. It was dry as a bone where they were at. But you have this dry riverbed that gets full of water, just rages down the hill and sweeps anything in its way into the Dead Sea. So what, what Mike is talking about here when he talks about 10,000 streams of oil, he's not talking about these little gentle gurgling brooks in your backyard. You know, he's talking about 10,000 overwhelming torrents of oil. That's his analogy. So he's saying this lavish or abundant sacrifice, quantity, should I offer thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? And we don't press God with my dedication to this idea. Well, we'll see the answer is obvious. Here's the third option. Absolute sacrifice. In the end of verse 7. The hypothetical Israelite worshiper offers the greatest sacrifice, the culmination of what a person could offer more precious than a burnt offering, more treasured than even thousands of rams and 10,000 overwhelming torrents of oil. This hypothetical Israelite worshiper, Joe Israelite, offers what should have paralyzed him with pain at the very thought of it. He says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What if I were to offer my own son even my firstborn son, my own flesh and blood, for the sin of my soul, the sacrifice of my son, would serve as some kind of payment for the worshiper's sin. So that was Israel's response to the Lord. Maybe we'll try total dedication. Maybe we'll try lavish sacrifice. Maybe we'll try absolute sacrifice. And again, there's another pause, I imagine, and we come to the Lord's remedy for his covenant nation. What does God think about this? 
The hypothetical worshippers offered his suggestions, and to be frank, they're all bonehead ideas. They didn't get it. And, and it'll help illustrate this. Guys, can you empathize with this? Have you ever said or done something really stupid that did not make a positive contribution to your relationship with the one you love? I'm thinking mostly of husbands with wives. Could be pop parents with kids. Could be girlfriend, boyfriend. <laughs> so you're not just locked outside. You're, you're locked in the doghouse or in the deep freeze. I mean, you're in big trouble. What do you do? So I'm in this big, I'm in this tough spot. There's tension in my relationship. It was totally dumb of what, what I said or what I did. And it didn't help things. How do I fix the problem? Okay, here's some ideas. These are all bonehead suggestions you'll see. Here, here's some ideas. I want to go buy my lovely bride some flowers. Maybe I can earn her favor. Maybe I'll go out and buy that kitchen utensil she's been asking for and I've been ignoring for several weeks. Or maybe, and this is more significant for my wife maybe than for yours, but maybe I'll go and take her, I'll commit Saturday morning to going to garage sales. <laughs> or going to Goodwill. That's one of the top two stores in some of my girls' uh, shopping habits. And, and, you know, all those ideas are bonehead ideas. They're not ultimately effective. And I'm not saying that buying my wife flowers is bad. And I'm not saying that buying her that kitchen utensil wouldn't be a good thing to do. Or to, to spend time with her doing something she enjoys would not be a manifestation of my love. That's not what I'm saying. You see, when we, when we have some kind of tension in our relationships with people that we love, the solution rarely revolves around stuff or things to do's. Yes, there are things we can do to help restore a relationship, but guys in particular, what we really need to do in those kinds of cases when we're experiencing relational tension, that's our fault. That's something we've done. The solution is to be a loving husband who lives as if our wife is the greatest treasure on earth. From the inside out, it's abundantly obvious to everybody around us, including her, that that's true. That replaces all the things we can talk about on the get out of the doghouse list. Right? And so that's what Mike is talking about here. He's, he's transitioning from the Israelite bonehead ideas to what God really is looking for here. And without introducing a new speaker in verse 8, he wants his people to understand, God's people, Israel, to understand this is what God's looking for instead of your task-oriented, to-do list idea. Buying God's favor. That is not what God's interested in. Here's what he wants. He says something amazingly generic. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And remember before in the chapter he talked about my people, my people, his people, and his intimacy that's there. He says, he has showed you, O man. It's kind of like, that's kind of different. I think what God has in mind is he wants his people to know really who they are. They are the creature, he's the creator. They are man. He is God. They are frail creatures with little to offer God except their loyalty. God doesn't need my obedience. He doesn't need my list. He doesn't need my tasks. He doesn't feed on them. But what he's done is he's, he's, he's demanded that I live a life of loyalty from the inside out because that makes him big in the world. That helps people around the world see what he's like. By me living out a life of vibrant loyalty from the inside out that shows up in concrete forms. So where we start is the idea. And, and he does something here in the first part of verse 8 that I think is really interesting, and maybe a Hebrew geek in me, but uh, hang with me here. This is called a chiastic structure. The point of a chiastic structure is like a mirroring image. It's where a verse goes with A, B, C, D, E, F. Then E, D, C, B, A. Reverse, kind of backs up. Goes forward six steps and goes backward methodically in the same six steps. Notice the parallel that's happening. He has told, he requires you from you, O man, Yahweh, what and what is good. Now most of the time this chiastic structure that occurs in Old Testament literature, the very basic significance is very memorable. Something that's arranged in this kind of a fashion is something you can memorize. You know, some verses in the Bible are easier to memorize than others because they have a pattern to them that you kind of grab onto. This would be very, very memorable. But some chiastic structures have this crescendo point, this singular entry that everything focuses on. It's like the culmination of the point. And I think that's what we're seeing here with Micah. 
not just something memorable, but something that God approves of, something God values, is what we should pursue. Back in Genesis 1, the creation account, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, at the end it says, and he saw that it was good. Day 6, he saw that it was very good, something that satisfied God's expectations. So what Micah is saying is, this is what God wants from you, what's good, based on God's definition, according to God's value system. This is what God fervently wants from his people, what is good. And, and the interesting thing is, is the life described here with good in the three phrases to follow is not primarily buildings and ceremonies, as much as that can be part of religion and a valid part. We're in one, right? Praise God for a building. Praise God for a service. Those are good things. But that's not primary. You see, the verse describes a God-honoring life from the inside out. The essence of what God expects from his people for all ages. And this is not something absolutely new or revolutionary, something Israel have never heard of before. For example, in 1 Samuel 15:22, he said, Samuel said this to Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? No. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In Hosea 6, 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the acknowledgement or knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. A knowledge of God that impacts life. You see, by saying these things, in other places, Micah is barking up that same tree, is hitting the same chord. But I want you to understand that the biblical prophet then, and what happened in 1 Samuel, what happened in Hosea, the prophet is not saying that animal sacrifices are unimportant or unnecessary. The prophet isn't saying, well, all you have to do is obey God, uh, never mind the sacrifice talk, that's unimportant. No, no, the truth is that God has commanded those sacrifices as a manifestation of the heart relationship. But the issue here is that God does not delight in sacrifices that are offered without a hard attitude that matches the sacrifice being put on the altar. Because when a person would put a sacrifice on an altar and at a heart that didn't match that sacrifice, what word do we have for that? Hypocrisy. Empty ritual. So when that Israelite worshiper would come to the altar with a, with, a, with, a, with a guilt offering, triggered by his sin, he comes with a heavy heart, maybe even tears in his eyes, but broken over the way he has not represented, represented God with clarity by his conduct. Or the believer who brings that thanksgiving offering and takes a part of his harvest, part of his profit margin, and offers it freely on the altar. It isn't like, I've got to give this thing, I'd rather not, and it's cutting into my profit margin. That's hypocrisy is the point. He's saying he wants there to be a correlation between their heart and their action. So what does God want most from his people? Look at these three statements. First of all, to act justly. You know, justice is not just a legal term. It refers to behavior that measures up according to a certain standard. And as sinners, our, our tendency isn't to seek what's best for others. It's to see what's best for ourselves, whether it's just or right. And why is that so important? And again, we come back to why God gave the law to his people. When God gave the law to his people, it addressed the two kind of dimensions, a horizontal dimension and a vertical dimension. If you took all the verses that deal with the vertical dimension, you're talking about sacrificial system, dedication of priests, and other verses like that. But then there's a lot of passages in the Mosaic Covenant that deal with everything else about how Israelites relate to fellow Israelites first and to people in general second. And you look at, those, at those, um, those laws and they're all asking God's people to live lives of justice, equity, and compassion. You see, what God wanted Israel to do was to live in a way that people would see God stamped on their hearts. To be, be treating each other as Israelites so the world sees the kind of a God they're serving. Because by treating each other with justice, equity, and compassion, according to the Mosaic Covenant, they would be doing something that was absolutely countercultural. Can you imagine what that would look like? If people in a nation treated each other this way, we've never seen it yet. We will in the millennium. And so he's desiring they would represent this God in the world. And I want you to understand, it's like you have an arrow pointing up and then arrows pointing out. 
They had a responsibility to God to honor him in their relationship with him. But an important part of the Mosaic Covenant was to demonstrate to the world what God was like by the way they related to each other, by the way they treated each other. And so he says here to them, do justly. What this looks like is negatively a person who does justly will have nothing to do with taking advantage of their, 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 their brethren through oppression, perjury, bribery, anything to their detriment. No deal. Positively, it means that a person who does justly desires, a, a person who does justly will notice and care for the needs of their fellow citizens, their brethren, will carefully defend their rights, will advocate for them. You see, God wants his people to live out from the inside out what he's like, and it shows up by doing justly. So it's not just a, uh, an act of obedience, it's a heart that shows up in obedience. And again, why does Micah mention it here? Because Israel is doing so poorly at this point in time. Read Amos and Micah sometime, and the tear will come to your eyes when you think about the horrific departure of God's people from his requirements. Here's a couple of examples, very sad passages in Micah 2. The prophet says, Woe to those who plan iniquity and to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it isn't their power to do it. They covet, these are fellow Israelites we're talking about, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. Israelite on Israelite oppression. An absolute corruption of what God expected of his people. The next one is even more graphic. Then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? Yet, you hate good and love evil. You tear off the skin of people and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. That's just nasty. And the point is he's not accusing them of cannibalism. He's likening the level of their oppression of each other to cannibalism. And it's in that kind of a world, the prophet Micah says, this is what God wants from you. Not just checklists, not just tasks completed without a heart. Do justly from the inside out. Pursue that relationship with him. God says enough. Take care of each other rather than take advantage of each other. And then the sad thing is, and then you move on to the next phrase, and that is the sad thing is, is that all the while Micah 2 and Micah 3 are happening, folks are eating the right kind of food, celebrating the feast days, going to the temple, offering their sacrifices. And it was a veneer to hide who they really were. Look at the next, is the next phrase, and that, that's uh, to love mercy. The word translated mercy or faithfulness here refers to a committed love based on a previously established relationship. Loyal love, loving kindness, steadfastness, covenant love, or different ways it's translated. You probably remember the psalm where every verse ends with, and his loyal love endures forever, his loyal love endures forever, his loyal love endures forever. That's what we're talking about here. This fixed commitment in the context of a relationship And God had entered into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. And he was unswerving in his commitment to that relationship. Even when they were faithless, he was faithful. He was characterized by covenant love, by mercy. And when God expected this of his chosen people, we need to understand this is part of this covenant relationship. You see, Israel is not only part of a covenant relationship with the Lord, but with fellow Israelites, fellow citizens of a covenant community. And what kind of a heart that Yahweh wanted his people to possess and manifest in their conduct. One that was absolutely committed to the relationship they enjoyed with the fellow servants of the God of gods. The Lord wanted his people to manifest a true heart relationship with him and with their fellow Israelites through their treatment of each other. And it's interesting here, this is the only place where they're told to love mercy. There are several places where it says do mercy, Practice mercy, which is important. But the idea here is you love mercy. And it's not, it's not like a warm feeling for mercy. The word for love in the context of covenant relationship has the idea of a wholehearted choice, an absolute commitment, and a holy embracing of this idea, and having it show up in your conduct. When the Lord says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it's not like, oh, I have this warm feeling for God. It's 
With everything you've got, you embrace this relationship with him and try to live it out for his glory. Love mercy. Ache to put into practice. Wholeheartedly embrace this call of God to live this way with fellow Israelites then. And uh, an example of why this was so important is in Hosea 4. It says there is no faithfulness, no, in our word, love or mercy, steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love. There is no mercy, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Oh, what a sad, sad commentary. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, offenses against each other, breaking all bonds, bloodshed follows, bloodshed. Another passage, Hosea 6, 4, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with Judah? Your steadfast love is like the morning mist, like the early dew, poof, and it's gone. It disappears. What God wanted his people to do is be to act justly from the inside out. And to love mercy, to be wholehearted commitment to the steadfast love, seen especially toward each other, because that makes God big. You know, friends, there are all kinds of people in this world who are moral people. And I'm grateful for that. I'd rather have moral people around me than just uh, horrific, dedicated sinners. But the thing is, that's not what God's called us to. The difference... And the life of an individual shows up when the roof caves in, when the bottom drops out. That's when the difference Christ makes in our life shows up. So what are we like in difficult circumstances? Not just when things are easy. Do I do justly? Do I love mercy at personal cost? Because that makes God big in the world. That's what God is calling Israel to and Micah and us as well. Last one, to walk humbly with your God. And the first two, I think, uh, deal with most of the horizontal relationships. I think the first, last one deals with our relationship with God more primarily. And like, like my people, your God, it refers back to that whole intimate relationship God wants to have with his people. I think the basic idea here, here is understand your position before God. Conduct yourself as if you are indeed the children of the God of the universe. Live in light of the fact that you belong to him. Have God's word be your meat instead of the ideas of the world around you. Pay attention to his will and not your desires. Follow his agenda and not yours. Walk humbly with your God. Be clay in his hands. Have your eyes fixed on God, a humble servant waiting for his master's direction. And I suggest to you that this third one is foundational to the first two. Is as people walk humbly with their God, they're able and they want to do justly and love mercy. So Micah comes to his people and he says, this is what God wants from you. Not the goofy ideas you offered me that are buying God in his favor. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Well, on the one hand, you can say, well, is that all God asks from us? I mean, it's not some complicated formula. You have to have a Ph.D. in semantics to figure it out. Praise God, it's not. God is never going to complicate God in that way. He wants things to be clear. He isn't playing hide-and-seek with us, cloaking things. Put it right on the table for us. This is what God-honoring living looks like from the inside out. Not task-focused. It's relationship-focused. From the inside out, we impact the world. But, you know, on the other hand, this is one of the greatest challenges you and I face. Having a sinful heart and living in a sinful world, I'm not up for it. I'm not sufficient for the task. As lovely as my wife is, as sweet as she is, and as selfless as she is, I need God's strength to love her as Christ loved the church. And so, friends, this is a huge challenge for us that we need God's strength for. Peter Craigie, an Old Testament scholar, once said, at first it doesn't sound like much, but it's more than enough for one lifetime. And that's, friends, we need to come to, I need you every hour. We need to come to the realization that we are not able to do it ourselves, but we need his strength. And that's where we speak the gospel to ourselves each day and try to live it out by his strength. So as we look at God's expectations of the nation of Israel then, and I think us today, there is relevance. Then and now, does God ever want mere external conformity to a list of rules and regulations, no matter how biblical that list might be? Is he interested only in our church attendance, offerings, Christian service, and acts of obedience? No, not alone. 
He wants his children to be devoted to him from the heart, from the inside out. He wants what his children do to be a clear manifestation of who they are, not a cover for it. And just a couple of verses to help you see the connection with the New Testament. In John 13, we read, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another. The point is, is how do we make God big in the world? From the inside out, we do justly love mercy. We love one another. How do people know that we're his disciples? By the way, we love one another. That's countercultural, friends. At personal cost. With the unlovely. To live this out. And what else? Walk humbly with your God in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who, you have, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So walk humbly with your God. Glorify Him. Pursue His agenda. Desire His will. Pursue His honor. Among all the things that we can devote our lives to, and again, you don't all have to be seminary professors, doctors, nurses, teachers, garbage collectors, carpenters, whatever it is, everything is secondary to my, my pursuing God's glory. We're here to make a difference for eternity in the way we live, and it only happens as we pursue this relationship with God from the inside out that shows up in concrete acts of righteousness and obedience. So God is not interested in heartless obedience and a ritualistic devotion to him, a crossing of the T's and dotting of the I's. What the Lord wants from every adult, young person and child is to obey him and avoid unrighteousness because it is what our heart compels us to do. He said to Micah, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. May God help us to have a relationship with him that enables us of the overflow of that relationship as the engine that drives our conduct to make him big in the world. Let's pray.